0: Just a moment. Just a moment. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast. Exploring where the law has been. Hey Siri, take yourself. And where it's going. Oh, good afternoon. From the brilliant... My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot. To the scary... Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? And everything in between. Please welcome your very real and very human host, Dan Hunter.
1: So today I'm with Professor Ray Worthy-Campbell of uh, Peking University School of Transnational Law and uh, a noted theorist about the future of legal education. Uh, Welcome, Ray. Thank you. Good to have you here on uh, the Future Law Podcast. So uh, a couple of years ago you wrote uh, this great piece called uh, The End of Law Schools uh, with a subtitle. I can't remember the rest of the subtitle, right? Um, And you start off with uh, law schools as we know it are doomed, um, which I thought was just this this great opening sentence. So can you tell us why you said then uh, why law schools are doomed?
0: Well, I I think law schools were, as we know them, really worldwide, were conceived by Christopher Christopher Columbus Langdell, you know, at Harvard in the 1870s. Right. And it was really about um, teaching doctrine and training people to think about analyzing doctrine. Mm -hmm. And even though Langdell had been, by modern academic standards, a lawyer for quite a long time, uh, that doesn't really map to, you know, what lawyers need and what lawyers do. It's always been more multi-dimensional, you know, requiring soft skills and all sorts of things that aren't measured in law school. But it's it's changing even more because technology is um, providing substitutes for what lawyers do, some of which are really pretty good. Um, The practices change, so people are more specialized, so all this generalized knowledge we have is not necessarily on point. Uh, And I think we're on the verge of morphing into uh, a range of occupations, you know, not just the practice of law. As my grandfather and great grandfather knew it, right. And and so law schools are still training, you know, for that long ago world where people would leave Harvard and go practice in a market town in Western Massachusetts, and right. we, that's not where we are. And if we keep doing that, you know, we really are, we really are
1: doomed. So what? So, I mean, I think I agree with you. I'm not sure that we're doomed, but I, but I do agree. If we keep doing it, we're, we're doomed why why is it that we keep focusing on that style of of, of um, product, you know the product of legal education and the, and the students emerging from it as, as product? Why, why do we keep doing it?
0: Yeah I think that's interesting. I mean and part of it is you know lawyers and also academics can be extraordinarily traditional. Mm-hmm. They can be extraordinarily about preserving. Uh, you know, existing hierarchies. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> You've had <got> lawyers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone wrote an article about it. Yeah, though. maybe. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think it's also that, that for a part of being a lawyer, it does work pretty well. I mean, the mm-hmm. Langdell method, uh, for example, we've brought here to STL, you know, right. the case study, the Socratic method, the putting students on the spot and making them work through a case and mm-hmm. identify what the principles are. For that part of law, Mm-hmm. That involves that kind of doctrinal thinking. It, it works. It works pretty well. It's mm-hmm. better than sitting in a big classroom and having someone read their lecture notes. So, right. so it's 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 insufficient, but it's not bad, mm-hmm. you know. And
1: and so I think that's part of it. But I, it's also just tradition, I think. Right. So I mean, in the in the article, uh, which I'll I'll drop a link to in in uh, in the site, um, you you kind of identify other areas of, of, of legal services, right, the legal services industry that that law schools don't really address, right? So so what are the sorts of areas that law schools might be addressing, and, and how would they actually go about doing that?
0: Yeah, so one of the curious things about Langdahl's method is it focuses on the courtroom, it focuses on reported cases, which of course is a part of law. It's a bit of it. Yeah, but and, it's, and it. it's certainly the, a traditional part of law. Um, but you know, law obviously, particularly in the regulatory age, has you know a lot more faces than just that. Right. So, um, you know, one area that I think you know law is is expanding, and and it is you know sort of a, uh, you know, one of the, the areas where American law schools argue that it, it helps to have been the law school to do it is compliance. You know, it's yeah. not really practicing law. Mm-hmm. Uh, requires skills that overlap to some degree with practicing law mm-hmm. but also include if you're going to do it right and think about it correctly a lot of other skills that law schools don't and really currently are not confident to, to teach so that's that's one area you know dealing within organizations trying to identify legal problems before they ripen into big problems and guide people toward you know legally you know uh, you know proper uh, behavior um, you know, I, I think you mentioned that, you know, you know you've know, you worked some with people on the, you know, the criminal justice side. You know, they're, right. it's not just the prosecutors and the judges, you know, the policemen out there and they need to, they need to understand, understand law. And so there's just, there's all these areas where people need law and uh,
1: lawyers are, are not, uh, these days, always the best solution. Yeah, no, I, well, there's, there's certainly lots of legal service needs out there, right, or legal needs. And the thing that's, that struck me about law schools for a long time is, is how we don't really try to address those legal needs, you know, except maybe through a pro bono clinic or something like that. Or we say, okay, well, we don't care about criminal justice or, you know, that's, that's another part of the university. We're not going to do compliance because it's kind of beneath us. I mean, is that the reason why law schools haven't diversified their, their revenue base? I think it's part of it.
0: I think there's a, a huge status thing. Uh, yeah. In the U.S., I think it's partly regulatory. I think the ABA uh, accreditation people would have a problem with a dean who was dean of both a compliance program and a law school, a traditional JD law school program. Why? Why is that? Uh, it's just the way they set it up. They don't want law schools you know, merged into you know multiple things. Uh, I think the profession has issues. Uh, they like the idea that law is a unitary profession. Mm-hmm and that lawyers, no matter how different their day-to-day lives are, are really part of the same profession, push back against a a view where, you know, someone who does securities law is closer to a securities compliance specialist than he is to someone who writes trust in the state's plans in, you know, rural Iowa. You know, know, I mean, those are, um, you know, so so you you have sort of entrenched, Interest groups that, that, that want to think about law as a profession and law schools as serving that profession, mm. but but I think you got to step back a little and, and 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 although that's the world I grew up in and I come from a family of you know with a lot of lawyers in it and I like law schools, <laughs> uh, but you know ultimately you know as Richard Susskind says you know law is not about lawyers uh, any more than than illness exists to serve doctors right. you know it's. Um, You know when you think about law you've got to think about why law matters and it matters for society more than it matters for lawyers you know the idea of a uh you know sort of well-ordered uh you know systems of 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 rights and privileges and and duties that people can understand and function you know uh, efficiently and happily within goes way beyond lawyers and as the world changes uh, you need to think about well lawyers were a good solution for some legal needs for a long time. And I tend to think there'll be a solution for some legal needs, at least as long as I'm around. But but there are other solutions now that, that help uh, contribute to the, the idea of an orderly society. And I think law schools need to be thinking not about themselves as being about lawyers, but about being about that that's about society, about what society needs in terms of legal solutions. And so we should be going to be on the parochial. We're, we're part of a profession, we serve a profession, and we're not going to get our hands dirty with this other stuff and be thinking, what's the best thing for society? You know, how do we best serve society? And if it takes us beyond just
1: training lawyers, that's where we should go. Right. Um, so one, one of the things I find interesting when I go out and talk to, to people in the profession is uh, I usually start with a slide that indicates, you know, the future of and it says the legal profession, and I and I strike through profession, say legal services market, right? And 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 I and I've seen lots of times where the lawyers and certainly law deans and, and law professors, they kind of go, oh, hang on, wait, you know, uh, I, I don't really like that, you know. So I'm interested. Do you think that this idea of the profession is? is dying or is dead? Do you think that it's helpful to us? Because I, I think it's really quite unhelpful. It's, it's an important kind of construct, but but it limits our ability to think through what the future is going to look like. I mean, I, I think it's a, a beautiful idea. I mean, I love the idea of a
0: right. profession. I mean, you know, Roscoe Pound, I mean, you know, people in, engaged in, a, in a, a common pursuit uh you know uh of, of justice that are only incidentally you know making money cuz you have to make money somehow <laughs> have to yeah. No but but there is that and I've and I've known lawyers who who've lived that way you know who were very public service oriented and who took the idea of being a professional very seriously. So I think it's I think it's beautiful but but I also think it's it's limiting as you say because it it, it to the extent we think that's the only solution to society's problems uh um, we ignore other things, and and I also think, in in too many cases, it's a little bit fake. I mean, there are there are people who at the annual law dinner feel very professional, and the rest of the time they're out grubbing for money, right? <laughs> right. I
1: mean, chasing I mean, ambulances. Yeah,
0: or chasing general <laughs> counsel or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I've worked in big corporate law firms, and and you know we didn't run ads on TV, but you know it was well understood if you weren't generating the revenues, you weren't part of the firm anymore. So, I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful idea, and and there are people that argue it's always been only a beautiful idea. We've never really had a true profession. Right. There are those who argue, well, we had one just yesterday, you know, <laughs> just before I practiced, but it's been under challenge, yeah. and there are some who argue, well, we still have some of it today, and, and to some degree, they're all right. I mean, it's never measured up, uh, and there are individuals that I've known that live their lives as professionals, you know, according to the model that you know, Roscoe Pound or Elliot Friedson would, would talk about. But I, I think some of the the ones that are most committed to public service would say, well, if there's a way to solve, you know, access to justice issues that doesn't require, um, you know, all that we do, then then why not? I mean, I think the more public-spirited you are, the more open you might be. And mm-hmm. and, I, and I say that recognizing that lawyers do... You know, bring a lot. You know, when the government steps out of line in the United States, it's lawyers who step up. You know, and and file the lawsuits and Absolutely. give time. So, I, I'm not discounting that, but I am I am saying we're not solving all the problems. Um, I mean, I, I think of it a little bit. Um, you know, it, it. You know, we. You know, we're sitting here. We're both. You know, uh, for those in the listening <laughs> audience, we're both fully dressed in clothing, yeah. and neither of us are dressed in clothing that that, that is tailor made, right? Absolutely. Not. There was a time when all clothing was was custom made. Yeah. You know, it was artisanal. You know, people, you know, hand-wove the, you know, the, you know, they had a a, a loom in the cottage and they did the cloth and they sewed it by hand and it was incredibly expensive by today's standards, but it's what they had. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, mechanical looms and and sewing machines and all that came along and, you know, clothing was made mass manufactured that may not fit you as well as a as a bespoke suit but it fits well enough and it's a lot cheaper and you can afford it and that's what most of us live with right you know in law i think is going to need more of that right you know it's going to need some of that to to meet some of the needs that people have yeah what? i mean one of the things that's that happening in society is you know we're a we're a highly regulated society now I mean, when langdell was starting his <laughs> law school the regulatory state was was not really, you know, you know, really full-blown. It was it just beginning to be the glimmering of the right. modern regulatory state. And, you know, torts and contracts and the kinds of things that ended up in court, you know, were maybe a more complete representation. But today, you know, the legal obligations are so pervasive that you know, we can't possibly have enough really smart people hand crafting solutions.
1: There's right. just not enough out there. Right, whenever, whenever I talk to students about this and sort of say, how many bespoke tailors do you know Right. Okay. So think of yourself as as those kind of guys. Alternatively, how many people do you know who might be producing stuff and, and mass production systems? You know, mass produced suits, tables, you know, chairs, whatever it might be. Okay, that's really more of the model that we we have to be moving to. And you can either fight it or or, or you don't have or, to. Or, or
0: even blended models like yeah, doctors. Sure. I mean, you go to a doctor and you know, if you're going to get a hip replacement, there'll be a skilled surgeon giving so, you a new knee or a new hip, but he's not in the back whittling up the knee. I mean, it is a, it is a, a commercial, God, I hope not. <laughs> it's it's a commercial product. Yeah, if he's so. going to prescribe medicine, he's right. not compounding, yeah, compounding right. it in the back room. Yeah. So, you know, there's still a diagnostic function, there's still an evaluating function, but, you know, they've done a good job of plugging in, you know, sort of, um, you know, industrial scale solutions. In, in law, to be fair, is achieving some of that now. I mean, you know, we are getting uh, things like e-discovery and, you know, artificial intelligence, legal research that law firms are plugging in to, right. you know, customize solutions. And right. I think there'll be more and more of that. Um, and one of the interesting things is the regulatory barriers. If, if you're serving general counsel, they're lawyers, so you can sell them anything and it's not right. practicing law without a license. If you're providing the same service to an individual, you know, you have to be very careful about the regulatory hazards, which vary a
1: lot from country to country. Right, absolutely. Um, your your analogy or your comment about, about the doctor and the hip replacement is interesting, because one of the things I've been thinking about, to come back to our discussion about the future of law schools, you know, the, are, are they doomed or are they not, um, medical schools usually operate within a larger kind of health sciences framework right? So you've got the various different sort of practitioners, whether they're physiotherapists, or ophthalmologists, you've got your doctors, you've got your hospital. Um, it's a much bigger operation, but there's room for lots and lots of different sorts of um, types of professionals within that. The law school is just, you know, one thing. It's a, it's a JD or an LLB product and, you know, the students graduate at the end and they become lawyers. Is there any possibility of kind of creating a like a legal sciences precinct that where you've got these different sorts of professionals who get trained within that environment and to certainly change the reality of the revenue streams for for law schools even if it's going to be hard
0: I I, I, well, I mean I think there's a lot of institutional inertia and someone has to be first mm-hmm. but one of the arguments I make in, in, in the article that you know we started off talking about is that you know, someone's got to be first. You know, when Harvard, when Langdell started the model that's now dominant at Harvard, everyone else had people standing up and reading lecture notes and people <laughs> writing them down. And right. his was a, a major break from tradition to mm-hmm. sort of say, we're going to we're gonna be more like scientists, And but our, our, you know, specimens are cases. You know, we're not going to have, you know, a geologist looks at rocks, we look at cases. So his was a radical break. And I, I think we're at a time in history where we're due for, you know, another radical break. I mean, you know, the Langdell models had a 150-year run, which is a pretty good run. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think exactly what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it's better for... Uh, it's more efficient. I mean, for example, to be a compliance practitioner, you need to know something about law, but you don't need a three-year or no. four-year law program. Right. Uh, and you also need to know things that law schools are not currently competent to teach. You need to know... Uh, you know, why people do the things they do at a psychological level. You need to know uh, statistical techniques and artificial intelligence techniques to help you track behavior and organization so you can see if you have problems. I mean, um, you know, we don't teach that. Um, So, and it it could be a shorter, less expensive, you know, more accessible program to do a master's in compliance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also think it would be better for scholarship because I, I think... I mean, you know, legal scholarship from the Langdale time on, and this has changed somewhat with the Empirical Legal Studies Movement, um, but there is a tendency for law schools traditionally to focus on cases, you know. And I think these other schools would would do what the Law and Society Movement and and the Empirical Legal Studies Movement have tried to do but not quite succeeded in doing in really broadening law school beyond cases to really law as it is in society, uh-huh. because once you're dealing with compliance, once you're dealing with uh, people with with jobs in the justice system or the or, or the mediation system, you know that that aren't lawyers. You know you you begin to see it differently, and you begin to realize there's more than just what the rule is. Mm. It gets that matters a lot to actually reaching you know
1: resolutions. And every practicing lawyer who's been out for a, a length of time realizes what they don't know. You know, it's going to be a completely different kind of environment. Um, shifting direction a little bit, we're here at the School of Transnational Law of Peking University in Shenzhen. Um, you've been here for for years and uh, know kind of what the school is trying to do and what it's done. Um, how does it differ uh, from, from what other schools are doing, and, and is it the future of law? Well, that's I mean, it is a
0: future of law. I mean, I, I think it's, it'd be hard to do in a lot of places what we do here. But by being something different from a standard either Chinese or JM program, in that sense, I think we're the future of law. So here our students are mostly, uh, aside from a relatively small LLM program, uh, Small but really interesting LLM program that listener students should consider. Uh, are mainly Chinese students, and many of them have never left uh, the People's Republic. They've never. Some of my students have never even been to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, and some of them have learned English listening to cassette tapes in their village back when there were cassette tapes, and wow. um, you know. So these are kids. Uh, you know the the wealthy kids. You know, mom and dad buy them a first class ticket, and they go someplace. So some of our kids are wealthy, but a lot of them aren't. This is their opportunity. They're really smart. They're obviously fluent in Mandarin. Some seem like native speakers in English. Some are merely fluent enough to do uh, an English language law program. But what they do is is they study a, a full American JD track where they're learning the common law, and then they study a full Chinese Juris Master's track where they're learning the civil law, and inherently in both, you're learning both cultures, you're learning both viewpoints, you're learning both political systems. And so they come out not just with two sets of legal doctrine, but really two sets of cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. And two sets, so so they're coming out with uh, a skill set, and I think this is really important, that goes way beyond the law. They, they're capable, even if they leave law, being the bridge in, in, a, in a cultural, and, you know, we're living through some, you know, whenever you listen to this, there'll be a cultural clash between Asia and the West. Right. Uh, there's certainly some going on right now. And, and our students are the kind of people that can sit down with both sides and say, let me explain to you what they're thinking. Right. Let me explain to you how their legal system works and right. why they're doing it this doing. way. Yeah. And, and I think those kinds of extra skills, you know, I, I, uh, are the future. I mean, being able to answer a legal question is significantly devalued in the age of artificial intelligence. Being able to thoughtfully apply that in you know cultural context and in light of comparative systems and to help people think about how to achieve their goals at a sort of multi-dimensional level, I think is 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 where law school has to go. I mean, we move from playing checkers to playing you know 3D chess, you know, because that's really what law practice is, right. and. And in in, in settings like this, I think, will help prepare
1: students better. Right, the, I mean, the thing that I notice about when I talk to the students here and talk to the faculty members here um, is, is that uh, you're asking a lot more of, of law and of the students and of the faculty members than most law schools, right? It's just like the, the students were saying how busy they are I was talking to them about maybe adding some some ideas you know from the technology side and they're like oh we've got too much going on already and you know it's kind of killing us is is the the sort of the future of of law um, for the future of law schools about adding lots of different ideas and sort of trying to be this cultural bridge whether it's across business and law or across different cultures or whatever and, and what does that mean in terms of how much we cover how we cover it and so on i mean i think we're we are at this crisis point and and we don't know what the future is going to look like we don't know where to go i mean i think that's
0: a really good question i mean and it, and it is true our students work like you know rented mules I and mean, they work really really hard mm-hmm. and uh and there, it's hard to add anything else. And but then you look at the curriculum and you go, well, can they not take a course in legal ethics? Well, no, they got. No, they got to do that. You know, <laughs> right? Can they no. can they not take this course in the Chinese curriculum? Well, you know, our colleagues think they really need to have that. So right. it's hard. It's hard to subtract. Um, but I I I think um, I think we're going to have to subtract. And, and I think again, it gets back to what you were saying earlier about different kinds of degrees. I mean, mm-hmm. I think. When we look at the kinds of problems people are going to go solve, we're going to have to think through what do they need for that problem. Do they need three years of law school or do they need something quite different? Mm. I think for our students, if they're going to do what they do, which is work in transnational settings with a foot in both legal systems, they kind of need what we what we have. Mm-hmm. There ought to be an option for some of them to dial back on you know, securities law or international arbitration and pick up law and technology and right. make that another area of concentration because, you know, we are in Shenzhen and we do have a student body where a remarkably high number of them have technical backgrounds. Right. I mean the the kids who are bad at math in China you know, come out of high school and, <laughs> and, and aren't the ones, you know, have still had two years of calculus
1: and linear algebra. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. So. right. Maybe not getting into Caltech, but certainly better than your average American and Australian student.
0: Yeah. A lot of our kids, they, they were, you know, some have been, some trained as doctors, some trained as electrical engineers, but a lot more STEM majors here because right. there are more STEM majors in China, sure. which positions our students to be, and plus we're in Shenzhen, which is a center for all that kind of stuff, so yeah, I think it'd be great if we could do that, but we'd have to uh, we, we'd have to help show them that there's a career path where they're not taking too big a risk, you know, not taking that extra yeah.
1: IP class the or the securities extra, class. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's that that's tough. Um, so wrapping up, then um, you said that that law schools are doomed, or law schools as we know them uh, are doomed. Uh, what's the what's the best way? Uh, for maybe a new incoming dean at, a, at any given school uh, or a school like this one to, to ensure that the law school that, that he or she is coming to isn't doomed. Well, I, I, I think
0: uh, you have to think about what the needs are that aren't being met, mm-hmm. right, in society. Right. You know, you, you need to discount what Professor Campbell in room 505 wants, (laughs) because I'm fungible, I'm maybe not fungible, but I'm certainly replaceable, (laughs) you know. Um, And, you know, you you need to not focus too much, to the extent that you can afford it, not to focus too much on entrenched constituencies, but to think about if this law school is gonna have a, a role 15, 20, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years down the road, what needs do we need to meet to make us relevant to society, to make us relevant right. to new generations of students? And I think, you know, for some students in some places, the traditional JD curriculum, you know, meets needs. I, I, I you know, I'm overstating it when I say law schools are, are completely doomed. But I, I do think law schools are gonna morph into something, uh, a lot of them are gonna morph into something that meets more of these needs. So if I were a new dean, I'd be thinking, what you know? Look around Shenzhen and say, what's not you know? When I talk to business people, when I talk to, you know, uh, you know, people in NGOs or in community services, you know, what does this society need that's law related that they're not getting, and are we in a position to provide a solution? Right. And if we are, I think that. Would, is is where this where schools like ours need to go. And we, 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 we need to not put on the voluntary shackles of, well, we're a law school, we don't do that. Yeah. But to think about our job is to serve society's need for legal order. What ways can we do that that aren't being met? And I think a dean who does that can do
1: some really important work. Right. You said, um, uh, I like said before, finishing out, but maybe one, one last question. Um, you were talking about the way that, that law schools generally have to change and, and I don't notice many of them changing. You know, I, I just it's it's surprising how how few of the deans seem to be focused on the future. I think I think most of them sort of want to be, you know, they, they feel like that, but they're either not looking out there in society, seeing what, what, what are the needs, you Why know, why why aren't law schools changing really, really quickly?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that I mean I, I think they're changing in some ways. For example, there's more clinical programs than when I went to law school. You right. know, things like negotiation, which I teach, are on the curriculum now. So in some schools, have, have, you know, like Harvard and NYU, have addressed the first year to try to help people start off being more practice-ready. Um, you know, or St. Thomas in Minnesota has done some interesting things. But, but I think... Um, I think part of it is institutional inertia. I think part of it is if, if, you, if you own a hammer, every problem you know, seems to be a nail. Right. You know, um, you've got alumni who give money, some of whom are very traditional. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, been, there's been incremental change that's, that's not nothing. Uh, but in terms of really saying, we're gonna rethink our mission and do something truly, truly different, not add a first year course or not add some electives in upper years, I mean, that really isn't happening. I think it's partly the dead hand of ABA regulation in the US, you know, over-regulates. So it would almost have to happen outside the US. Um, But I I also, uh, I think it's just, you know, people think of themselves as doing a certain thing. And Mm -hmm. you know, when you're a dean, uh, you've still got faculty and alumni, you know,
1: who have an idea of what a law school right.
0: is, and and I the deans so.
1: are usually professors themselves or reformed professors, right? So they kind of go, "Well, wow, it worked for me. I, I did that." So yeah. it's tough. Yeah, I, I think it's tough. I mean, I think I do think it's going to happen, though. I mean, you know,
0: we're we're lucky here. You know, we don't have old rich alumni. You know? <laughs> we have young, hardworking alumni, no, right. <laughs> uh, and and our faculty is is small and 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 by nature of sort of self selection, pretty open to something different. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, I think in the U.S. schools, and also I think you, you can't ignore U.S. news, which
1: really penalizes yeah, any it's deviation. Yeah, yeah you got to stick to that. Well, I think our time's at an end. Uh, Professor Rayworthy Campbell, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Enjoy.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Future Law
1: Podcast. For links to the articles mentioned and to contact the hosts, visit futurelawpodcast.com.